listening to the Animation Addicts podcast with the Rotoscopers, episode 178. Interview with Chris Sonnenberg, executive producer of Tangled the Series. Welcome to the Animation Addicts podcast with the Rotoscopers, Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar, Don Bluth, and everything in between. I'm your host, Morgan Stradling, and today I am so excited to bring you this interview with Chris Sonnenberg, who is the executive producer, creator, and showrunner for Tangled the Series. Now, you might have heard me talk about and rave about Tangled the Series on our last episode, and there is a reason for that. Tangled the Series was first released in 2017. The series was kicked off with a TV movie called Tangled Before Ever After. Then it proceeded to have three incredible seasons on the Disney Channel and just wrapped up its third and final season this past March. And the third season actually just dropped on Disney Plus a few days ago, so I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to bring Chris on the show to talk about the series, his work on the show, how he came up with the concept, and a few more behind the scenes goodies. So before we dive into this interview, I want you to know that we are going to be talking about the entire series as a whole. So there will be spoilers in this interview. There were things that I just had to talk about and I had to go directly to the source to get my answers. So if you have not seen the series, now is a really good time. So you might want to just hit pause on this episode, go binge the entire series and come back. Another reason why you definitely want to catch up on Tangled the Series is because in two episodes, we are going to be doing a Tangled the Series review. And we're gonna have a special guest host for that. We're gonna have Isaac Carlson of YouTube fame. You might know him from his channel, Watso Videos. He is a big Tangled the Series fan and he is going to be joining us to talk all things Tangled the Series. You are definitely not going to wanna miss that. Now, before I get into my interview with Chris, I want you to know that we actually have a few bonus questions that we ask Chris, and they are available exclusively to the patrons of the Animation Addicts podcast. So if you are an existing patron, never fear. The episode with the bonus questions is already in your podcast feed, and you're probably already listening to it. But if you are not a patron, you should definitely consider it because you get tons of exclusive bonuses and perks just like this one. And when I say we asked him a few questions, we didn't just ask him one or two questions for the patrons. There was about 15 to 20 minutes of extra questions that I asked him, and we go really deep in these questions. And I'll just give a little tease about one of the things that he shared, which actually wasn't about Tangled the Series at all, but he shared a story with me about how he nearly lost the entire animation footage for one of the animated films that he was working on. Wow. The patrons are going to get the full story. And if you want the full story, go to rotoscopers.com slash patron to sign up and to become a part of Roto Nation. Without further ado, let's dive into our interview with Chris Sonnenberg. All right, so we have Chris Sonnenberg, who is the executive producer, creator, and showrunner for Tangled the Series, or Rapunzel's Tangled Adventure, and we will talk about that name in a bit. We are so excited to have you, Chris. Welcome to the Animation Addicts Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting. I love anytime people get together and are excited about animation and, and talking about it. So let's let's get started. Yeah, so let's jump right in and let's talk about your animation journey, how you got into animation and ultimately how it led you to Tangle the Series. Yeah. So, you know, I, as did a lot of the, you know, some of my peers, we all 
started drawing when we were really young. And I think like in the kind of the late 70s, early 80s, there was a, especially when Star Wars came out, a big push to really appreciate storytelling uh, on a big level, movies. Um, but we were also raised with a really healthy, I was raised with a, with a, 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 a healthy uh, appreciation of art. And uh, my mom loved taking me to the theater. So, you know, my house in particular was really flooded with um, art and music and theater and storytelling went to the movies a lot. I was raised, I was kind of a, you know, single parent. My, my mom kind of raised me on, on her own. So there was a lot of TV involved. So I loved watching cartoons in the morning and on the weekends and, uh, lots of television growing up. Um, and when it kind of started to come to the point of, of choosing a career, uh, we had a teacher, we had, a, I was in my art class in high, high school and we had a, a recruiter come from, from the school in Valencia called Cal Arts. And I didn't know anything about animation. I mean, how it was done, who did it. It, it was really kind of a giant mystery to me, but I loved drawing and I loved um, storytelling. But this recruiter came and started talking about a school that, um, that Disney would hire from. And I thought that was so interesting and so uh, intriguing to me. So we did a little bit of research, and my mom took me to the school. I was think I think it was a junior in high school, and we drove out there. And I just felt like when I walked into the department at Cal Arts, I had just kind of found my people. I found the place that I felt um, I I belonged. Um, it was super weird. It was really creative. There was a lot of amazing people. I had seen a piece of animation paper for the first time, and it really uh, lit a fire in me. And and then, you know, kind of at the same time, we're doing things like seeing, uh, at the time, Little Mermaid came out, and that just really shook me as well as like, wow, pe- there are people that make these things. And you got to remember back then, there's not a lot of internet. You didn't really see a lot of like making ofs. Yeah. Uh, there was a, there was like a, um, like a 2020 on, on ABC. There was like a little making of the little mermaid or something. And I remember watching that and being like, wow, there's people that actually make these things and tell these stories. So I got really excited and my mom took me to the school and saw like me light up. And from, from that point forward, it was kind of pushing, um, me towards applying to the school and then um which I did and my art teacher really got behind me and and um and really kind of changed my life from that point forward so um at that point I went to Cal Arts uh with an amazing uh class Sergio Pablos John Ripa Craig McCracken like some of the biggest names in animation today were all in this class. And, and I was right out of high school. I was one of the youngest um, students in, in the class right out of high school. I had just graduated went from high school, went right into to, to Cal Arts and, and was really intimidated, but was really inspired by all the people around me and my, and my instructors and my classmates. And uh, from that point forward, it just became, especially back then, what was interesting 
at that time, you're talking 1990, 91, 92, 93, the big push back then was to get into feature animation. That was the big goal for a lot of us. With the exception of a few, a few of my classmates, you know, like Craig McCracken certainly had his own style and was certainly influenced by television and, and wanting to do things in a much more dynamic way. But for the most part, we all wanted to get into, into the, into the, the feature side of things. So uh, I went uh, and applied and, and started working. Uh, I, my first job was an internship on a movie called Catstone Dance. I don't know if you remember Catstone Dance. I love Catstone Dance. What a wonderful movie that was. That is one of our most downloaded episodes. So there, there are, it has a fan base and yeah. people are searching for that because it's a hidden gem. Yeah, it's another one of these things that, uh, you know, that was all happening. Um, Page Master was happening at the time. They were just kind of getting started on the idea of an Iron mm-hmm. Giant was kind of um, happening at the time. So there was the big movement of Disney animation was moving, um, like Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin was all kind of happening. Um, but I was interning on um, uh, on Catstone Dance. And by interning, I mean, like, we were... I mean, I didn't, I didn't work on the movie at all. We were just there. There was a, probably a, a class of about maybe 20 of us were in that little internship. And uh, we all learned how to do in-betweens and kind of learned what it meant to go to work every day and fill out a time card. So it was really just learning how to be an employee. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, one of my first feature gigs was uh, on Pocahontas where I started at Disney uh, on Pocahontas, right at the end of Pocahontas, and that's kind of how I got started at Disney. And I was there for for about seven years from that point, all the way through the '90s, through I think like 2000, 2001, something like that. So one of the things that made you one of the the first and only candidates for the Tangle the Series uh, show was your unique experience with television animation and producing features. So talk about how you ultimately got approached to, to do this, got the big role. Yeah. So, okay. So I kind of have to take it back to leaving Disney then. So when I left Disney in 2001, it was an interesting time because, you know, Toy Story had come out, they had started to kind of lean away towards the hand-drawn films and that was really where my passions were. And so I had to kind of learn to do other things once, you know, I, I was in the animation department at Disney Feature and kind of comfortable there. I think, you know, the other thing that was kind of happening was that you were on this trajectory. I felt everybody at Disney Feature Animation at that time was all moving towards we're going to be animators and we're going to be making these Disney classics for the rest of our career. Like that's what we were all comfortable doing. And so at that point, there was this large shift in what they were aiming to do. And it just didn't, it didn't line up with what I felt I was passionate about. So what that ended up doing is kind of changing my direction. And, you know, I had a wife and a little girl and another on the way. And I just had to kind of figure out what was the next version of my career. 
So I started getting into different things, started to kind of getting into commercials, doing uh, directing small commercials for uh, Mattel, Barbie commercials, like anything I could find. And what was nice about that at the time was that there were also a lot of other people that were out of work because a lot of people weren't, you know, we had we we'd kind of left Disney and there were a lot of people looking for small bits of work. And so what was nice is that all the friends that I had made at Disney we all kind of banded together and started doing this other kind of finding this other version of ourselves, which was really neat. So I started doing a little bit of directing and, and, and finding out what was really fun about that is that I started to learn the other parts of this art form. So for so many years, I was in just kind of the animation department and understanding kind of like the pipeline of what the animation department did. But I was really in the dark about every other part of the process, layout, storyboarding, cleanup, color, you know, all these other parts of the process that were a giant mystery to me, I kind of had to learn on my own uh, doing these commercials. So it was, it, was a, it was a perfect kind of opportunity to be paid to learn how to do the rest of the process, and which I, which I ultimately started to love more than animation. So I got into kind of learning the, the entire process of, of animation. And then once those kind of went away, I did start doing some storyboarding for Futurama and getting into other aspects. I also boarded, went back to Disney and boarded on a show called Kick Patowski and then Gravity Falls. So then by the time, and then I had gone back to another division called Disney Toon Studios who were doing the Planes movies. They had done the Tinkerbell movies and... Um, they were doing this new franchise, and, and we were kind of moving towards a third Planes movie. And at that point, Disney Television reached out and said, hey, we're looking to develop a, a Tangled uh, series. Would you like to come over and see if you have an opinion about it? And I said, yeah, that sounds like a, a fun idea. I ultimately went over there and, and took a swing at it. And they, they loved my opinion of what to do with the characters. And that's kind of how that got started. Awesome. Can you talk about the pre-production process for developing a series? Because I think that's something that a lot of people don't really know about unless you're in the industry. But, you know, how big is your team? How long does it take? What are the different steps along the way? Sure. I think I approached it from a very story-driven standpoint. So before drawing anything, it was a big assignment of really understanding. Before I started to get distracted with whether we were going to do it in the computer or what her hair was going to look like or like what anything, what the style was going to be, I really wanted to understand what the story of this thing was going to be. And none of this came from the studio. So... The studio basically handed me the title and just said, do whatever you want with it. I mean, they could, if we had come up with like a preschool show or a puppet show or literally anything, they, they were ready to, to listen to whatever. And I was the only one doing it. It wasn't like they call it a bake-off when they have like three or four different teams all coming up with it. There wasn't a bake-off. It was just like they handed me the title. There was no pressure. It was just like, do what you think is the right thing. So we had gone through a different, a couple different ideas of what we thought the appropriate execution of the show would be, but it really kind of revolved around what was important to the character, what was important to the franchise, what made sense. It was me, my friend Jim Hull, who's a kind of like a story guru. He he um, really understands structure and understands kind of my my way of thinking and and my thematic way of of building things. 
um, Shane Prigmore, and a couple of visual development people along the way. But but really, primarily, it was story-driven. What was important to the character? Where did she need to go? Where were we going to set it? Was it going to be before the movie or after the movie or after the wedding? Like There was a lot of discussions about what was the most entertaining and, and, and opened up the most opportunity for storytelling. Before we drew anything, um, and before we even had the discussion about execution of, of style. So, and now we're talking about, I mean, it really kind of came together, I mean, shockingly fast and probably faster than I probably would have liked, but we really cracked the big story rather quickly within a few months. We, we were meeting every day and, and really kind of talking through what was important for the character and what was important for us to say I had two daughters growing up. I had a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old daughter at the house. We had a lot of conversations about what they were going through and what they would want to see in a show as they were growing up. Um, they were certainly having you know, issues with friends and with us as the parents. And my viewpoint of it and my viewpoint for any kind of story is really write what you know and write what is what you're passionate about and so since i was kind of around these young princesses every day i kind of just brought into the office the experiences that i was was having at the time one of our patrons she asked a question relating to this so yeah um, what was the process of world building like because one of the things that makes tangled the series stand out is its incredible world building and mythology so mm -hmm. Tell us about how you ultimately came to the Moonstone and the Sun Drop, you know, which was explained a little bit in the initial film. So like, can you dive into that a little more? Absolutely. So again, part of that conversation of what does Rapunzel need and what are going to be the things that are going to pull her. So once we had decided that the story was kind of going to take place between the movie and, and Tangled Ever After, it started to become this conversation amongst us as a development team, well, what are the things that happen to you in your kind of early 20s, late teens, and, and kind of things like that? So we started talking about our friendships and started talking about our relationships. And, and out of that came this idea of like, well, what, a, what would a friend look like for Rapunzel? Like, what kind of a friend would she want and look for and need and so you start talking about the mythology and every bit of the mythology in terms of the the sun drop and the moonstone all kind of has to revolve around the relationships right so we're talking about well if there's somebody else in her life how can we hang the mythology on the relationships and so we started coming up with the black rocks and and understanding you know what this moonstone was going to look like and and then beyond that and back and forth. How do we reflect the mythology in relationships? And how do we get the relationships to reflect the mythology that's happening? So everything that we did hopefully had two sides to the to the conversation. One didn't live necessarily without the other. If we were pushing her towards towards a marriage mm -hmm. and towards a destiny, then we were also pushing her towards, you know, this magic as well. And so the rocks were there to kind of push her along. You know, it was really important for us to have a a rhythm to the storytelling. If something was happening 
in uh, in the magic or in the mythology, then it also had to be happening in the relationships. And so there had to be this kind of conversation back and forth between the two, and one didn't live necessarily without the other. And so that way you have this fun, action-y, musical, romantic movements are kind of happening at the same time. That's kind of how that all happened. The, the world building really came from... Well, and then the other thing about the world building is that we had a great template in the film. Mm-hmm. So we kept going back to the film and really understanding what the tone of the film was. Nathan and Byron had done such an amazing job of really establishing a ground to that world. That it was part reality, but part fantasy. The characters were very real and very grounded. Um, And we just took that and and ran with it. It wasn't, you know, the magic in the, in the, in the show, of course, we had to build it out a little bit just because from week to week we wanted to have something to kind of see every week. But really the characters became the driving force of what was appealing about not only the movie, but then what we felt we had to do in the show. I like that there's those two pieces because when I think of Tangled the series, I think of the mythology and I think of the incredible characters, both new and old. And it's very interesting that the new characters are almost as beloved, if not more so than some of the established ones. So can you talk about the process of developing new characters for this? You know, particularly I think of Cassandra and Varian who are just on a whole other level in the fandom and how much they're beloved. Yeah. I give a lot of the credit to the appeal of those characters, not only to my writers, but also to our casting and to our cast, you know, so Eden Espinosa and Jeremy Jordan are phenomenal performers, but we also had amazing writers who, who wrote those characters into existence uh, and then created these amazing shoes for the performers to come in and fill out. But again, so one of the first things that, that I wanted to do was kind of flood my brain with everything that they had done on, on, on the film. So all the developments. So we um, scheduled a bunch of days to go over to the, I don't know if you've heard about the animation research library, the big research library they have at at the studio. It's amazing resource to be able to go and pull original artwork and pull the Mecca for anything animation, Disney, right? It's the Mecca for anything. And, and, and I had a really good relationship with some of the, um, the people over there from my time back in in the nineties. And so just being able to call up and be like, Hey, can we come over for a few hours and look through some of the development work? So we had gone over and I was, you know, what we had to do was kind of a, a arduous process, but we had to go, it wasn't a matter of just handing over a hard drive of, you know, 10 years of development. It just would have been, it just would have been ridiculous. So what they, what they wanted me to do was kind of sit in front of a computer and they had every file just kind of cataloged in this massive hard drive and I was just going through with with a uh, on the computer with a with an arrow key and every image had a number and I had a production person with me and as we were going through I was just saying numbers 403 405 527 528 and I would just as I'm going through and looking at, at images I'm just rattling off numbers so that they could then give me copies of of the images okay so as I'm doing that, we get into, you know, and you can kind of see the kind of 
flow of development. So I can, I can kind of see like an older version of the movie as we start getting into kind of Nate and, and, and Byron's version of it. And as we get into the end and we went through this kind of pocket of images where there was a version of, I think it was Rapunzel's mother who at one point was like a Joan of Arc type character. And so we were kind of thumbing through and I saw a few of these images of this Joan of Arc character. I didn't know kind of the context of it. None of them had any context. They were just these these sketches. And there were a couple of these beautiful images of a Joan of Arc character who just looked strong and just looked determined and just looked tough and beautiful and capable. And I was like, this is somebody, like without any context of what the creation was, I just started thinking like, this is somebody that I think Rapunzel would, because I was so taken with her, I was like, well, I think Rapunzel would... Would, would would be taken with somebody like this, would really be appealing to her because she was so, of course, you know, locked away for so many years. What does somebody like this look like? You know, we went back to the office and I started pinning up these things, being like, what does this look like? And, you know, Cassandra be- became really the first step into the built-out world. We knew we wanted to have mom and dad in there. We knew we wanted a relationship with dad a built out relationship with the parents. We knew we had these black rocks that was going to, that were going to push her towards an end, but we didn't really have any new characters. And so once I started seeing these things, I started thinking this is something that I, I would want to see for Rapunzel. And um, we just started building her out. And then that really became the, the starting points of the bigger parts of the mythology. Yeah, one of our patrons actually wanted to know about Cass's backstory, which you talked about. And she says, can you thank him for creating Cass for me? She's the character I related to and empathize with the most. She could have been my real life little sister. Our childhoods are the same. Watching the beginning of Rapunzel's return was hard for me emotionally because it felt like I was looking into a mirror in the past. Despite this fact, it helped me heal from the pain a little more. That's huge. And I'm sure you've had tons of fans and and people reach out about how these characters have many really affected their lives. So how does you as a creator, how do you feel about, you know, how much they mean to people? It means the world to me. You know, that's not necessarily a goal when you're when you're creating again, like we're just like to paint a picture of like what it looks like to be in development. We're in a tiny room in the back corner of a building. Nobody's paying attention to us. Tangled is not a thing. You know, the the series is not. Nobody knows that we're doing it. It's just kind of like there's rumblings. It's just me and a a couple friends in an office just talking. And so as we're kind of coming up with the characters, especially Cassandra, she is somebody that we just wrote a truth about. It wasn't an expectation. It wasn't like we had this thing that we were trying to hit. It was just a conversation of, who is the truth of this character? And to even say that we nailed that out of the gate is is not necessarily true. She she definitely transformed from a, a very early version of her, which was kind of you know a, like an, a villain from the beginning. You know, we we kind of like folded in a couple different versions. But as we were writing, and as we started discovering the truth of the character and the heart of the character, and the heart of the relationship, the story kind of evolved as well. And I knew very early that I wanted her to be the daughter of Gothel just to kind of give the relationship a dynamic that would change Rapunzel and really give give some stakes to the story. 
But in terms of the character herself, she really came alive when we started writing her. And especially when, when we cast her with Eden, when Eden came in and started, I saw Eden's a performance. Well, okay, to even go back farther, I loved the fact that Donna Murphy came from Broadway. I loved that some of my influences on casting came from Brad Bird, who had always talked about how when when Walt Disney w- was casting back in the day, you know, he would pull from vaudeville and pull from Broadway because there was such a sense of presence in their voices that that was a little bit different than somebody that would just be in front of a microphone. Theatrical performers just have a way of I think filling a room in a in kind of a, a little bit of a different way and and so it's kind of taking taking his advice there and and knowing that Donna Murphy had such a beautiful kind of background in on Broadway I thought well if she's going to have a daughter she's she will she will have come from Broadway as well you know so so we started looking and and what I really loved about about Eden was just her amazing range. She had what I was looking for in her voice was somebody that had a past, somebody that had a little bit of hurt in her voice, a little bit of uh, experience in her voice and life. And when I heard Eden speak and sing, I just heard history. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like she, it, it wasn't like this flat kind of like shallow thing. When you hear Eden speak, speak she has just the voice of a life lived and here you have rapunzel who hasn't really had a life i mean she's been in this in in this in this tower for for so long so to give somebody to her that she would be appealed to i was looking for somebody that had that experience in her voice and as soon as eden spoke and and especially when she was singing uh, some of the, the videos that I had seen on YouTube, I was like, this is, knowing full well what we were going to do, I didn't know that, you know, we didn't have the song Waiting in the Wings written, but I knew that that was going to be the first time the audience would hear her really sing. I knew there was going to be this moment. I was just looking for somebody that had that weight mm-hmm. to them and and could bring that that level I love that she has, and Eden loves, that she has uh, resonated with so many people who, you know, have felt like they're in waiting in the wings. And I feel like even myself, you know, again, like writing things that you know, especially going to CalArts where there were so many other people that were, that were getting the attention and I was being kind of quiet because I didn't really know and it wasn't, it wasn't personal, but I was very quiet at the time. And there was kind of a personal stake in creating a character that was waiting to to make a difference and, and waiting for their time to do something different. And I think Eden and I really connected on that level. So the series is bookended by the film Tangled and the short Tangled Ever After. And a lot of people really got stuck on the idea that Cass wasn't at the wedding. You have all these brand new characters who made great friendships with Rapunzel and Eugene during the series, but they're absent at the wedding. So did you take that into account? Did you consider that? Were you going to try to write characters off? What were you guys thinking behind the scenes? The fun of this of the show was... The idea that Cass was not at the wedding, right? So you didn't see Varian and you didn't see... We came to a point in the writing, I think somewhere around season, mid-season two, season three, where we started to all, you know, Ben Balistrieri was my co-EP on the show. 
and Jace Rickey was my story editor, head writer on the show, and we all would meet and kind of look at each other <laughs> and know that we had to get to this wedding, and the fact that like Varian and Lance and 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 certain amount of these different characters were not at the wedding, we had to just kind of bite it. We just had to go for it and just say like, you don't see him. I don't know. You just don't see him. Because if we started to over explain it, it just was going to seem weird. And we were going to paint ourselves into a corner where they were off. And it didn't feel right that Varian went anywhere. Like he had to be, he had to be there. But it was important that Cassandra leave um, for me thematically. Um, Because that's what we were saying for for three years was like, sometimes your life is somewhere else. And that's it. So what was fun about the wedding was that obviously Eugene was there and they were getting married. But Cassandra was not there. And of course, the main relationships in in the show are are, are, uh, Eugene and and Cassandra and, and Rapunzel. So we knew one was there and we knew one wasn't. So there was never going to be a mystery of whether or not Eugene and Rapunzel were going to get together, right? Like, that was never... Like, if we made a will-they-won't-they story, it wouldn't have been fun because we knew that they did. You know, we knew that they got together. So the mystery of the show became what happens with Cassandra. Does she die? Does she go away? Is she somewhere, you know, in the background? Like, you know, for the audience we took advantage of the fact that she wasn't there to keep the mystery of what happened at the end of, of the show. Now we, of course everybody knew we wanted to have a happy ending, but we took advantage of the fact that she wasn't there to help craft the mystery of the turn of her, you know, when she, when she turns, when she turns evil or turns to a darker side, it really was like, Oh, well, like what is going to happen is like Rapunzel. Cause we had the conversations like she's going to have to destroy her. It was like, well, what does that mean? Like, and that I thought kept the appeal of the show alive um, in terms of, of, of showing or not showing characters in the wedding. We just kind of had what we had and we just went forward with it and, and told the best story that, that we could. So what was the hardest character, whether new or old, plot point that just gave you the hardest time developing? I think the hardest one, I mean, probably if you talk to Ben or Jace or any of the directors, they'll probably have their own their own opinion. But for me, the biggest conversation, it was very early. Again, like we didn't we didn't have this conversation very many times. It was it was very early and the question of whether or not uh, Cassandra knew that she was the daughter of Gothel or not and when did she know it I listen it's no secret that the series is dark but I even had it darker than it was <laughs> like I had some pretty crazy dark things happen in my original pitch and people were like you cannot do that like <laughs> I mean I had some pretty crazy stuff happening um but you know I was really again like before we knew who she was by any stretch, I was really holding on to the fact that, that Cass knew that she was the daughter the whole time. And this entire show was like a plot to get the Moonstone. And the more that we wrote Cassandra, and again, like as soon as, not as soon as, but very closely after Eden was cast and she started recording any dialogue, she was just too appealing. Mm-hmm. She was just too likable. She was just 
too too good for that plot to be a thing. So we adjusted, and that's you know that's the fun and and the the freedom of a series instead of a movie. A movie you only have an hour and a half to to get through your plot. In a, in a series, you have hours and hours to to be able to grow out characters. But as soon as we started like creating her, really it became obvious that she had to she had to learn this information and that was really tricky and it was really kind of a sensitive thing to to do in in the beginning of season 2 but but that was a that was a tough one for me and then beyond that Zantiri was difficult only because you know I always say there's a relationship between the the emotion and and the and the mythology and Zantiri just always got in the way in terms of like well what does Zantiri want and then what does that have to do with their relationship so, you know, kind of folding into Zantiri's motive, just this kind of like, I just want power. It seemed cheap, but anything else that we did with Zantiri's motivation seemed to get in the way of Rapunzel and Cassandra's relationship, which we didn't want to touch because that was all, that was so much their own relationship that having this kind of demon-like thing have a say in their relationship just didn't, it didn't seem organic and it, it seemed forced. So we just took our foot off the pedal and said, um, let's just give her an innocuous thirst for power and really lean on the relationship, which is the one we cared about, which was Rapunzel and Cassandra. And again, and then, and then pushing Eugene and Rapunzel down this strengthening of their relationship, the farther away that um, Cassandra and Rapunzel became the, the the closer Eugene and Rapunzel became, and again, like I think that just felt satisfying because again we knew that they were going to get married, and it just kind of like it just strengthened that relationship. So that so in terms of like difficulty, those were kind of the two big ones for me. There was a lot of mythology things as to like what we do with certain things that we had set up. And, and ultimately, I just think that it just kind of came down to what was important for the show. And for me, always was their relationship and, and how that evolved. Speaking of some of those plot points that didn't make it. So what's something that you really wanted to see in the show, but because of the way the characters were going and the plot was going, you just couldn't fit it in? Believe it or not, it was the opposite where we kept bringing really amazing dynamic things to the show. So... Early on in the show, like, my main priority in the show was holding true to who Rapunzel was, keeping the tone and the fun and the appeal of the film in the show, and and the performances were always really important to me, animation-wise and from the storyboards going forward. But beyond that, I tried to lower my expectations as much as possible for what else could come in. Because I knew if we were doing our, our jobs right, then then the writers and the directors and the board artists and the performers and the background artists consistently blew me away. So it was the opposite, where, I, where there was very, very few things, if anything, that I wanted to do that we couldn't do as much as holding tight to the things that I knew we wanted to do and then raising the bar from there. And that's what our crew did. I mean, there was such a love of the movie from everybody involved that I knew bringing people on with a strong heart would would raise the bar. And that's what happened with, with our background designers, with our storyboard uh, crew, with our writers. 
everybody brought so much of themselves to the table that it got to the point where every day I was blown away by something new on the show, whether it be the music or whether it be a background or a character design or a color palette. I was always like, oh, I, w- I never would have thought of that. And that is amazing. And there were there were things even like when we would, like even when we delivered the show and, and I would watch the show and, and there were things that the fans would point out that I didn't even know that we did, that, that little tiny performance things that Mercury, who's our animation studio in Canada, things that they would put in that I didn't even catch. I didn't even notice. I'm just, I'm looking at, Again, like my priority, is it entertaining? Is it funny? Is it romantic? But like, like I'm, I have my priority things I'm looking at is the animation, what I want. But there were so many details and so many beautiful extra things put into the show by the crew on a consistent basis that my job became just like letting people do the, the, the things that they were great at. And hopefully that's what a great show is, is not just one person, but it's, it's an entire team. I was very specific and I was very hard on my team to maintain the things that I held as a priority, but giving them hopefully the freedom and the opportunity to build out things that, that they felt passionate about became the joy of creating the show. So who are some of the unsung heroes of the crew that you like to shout out, give more attention? Alan Bodner was our art director on the show and his color sense. Okay, so there's two things with Alan Bodner. Number one, his color sense. And, and the, I mean, when you look at our show, it's just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The color is just so beautiful. And he has such an amazing sense of whimsy and beauty but also can bring darkness and, and it's just so great. But the other part of Alan is that he is such a cheerleader for the production and to be able, I don't want to get like teared up thinking about it because I won't, but I, I have and I, and I do, but to have somebody like Alan just peek his head in throughout the week and be like, Hey Chris, I love working on the show. Like it's, it's, you know, have a great day. You know, just dumb things like that, that when I'm in the middle of some crazy meeting or I'm trying to solve some huge issue or we're having budget problems or scheduling problems or staffing problems, to have somebody as bright and wonderful as Alan Bodner to be able to just step in and without a care in the world and without any motivation or without any, no selfishness at all, peek in and just give you a a word of encouragement it's priceless. I couldn't have done it without people like him, and w- which we had a lot of. The crew members across the board, I mean, I give a lot of credit to our board artists. I give a lot of credit to our directors, who, again, like gave so much of their heart. Our production staff, Joe Crowley, who was our line producer, had an almost impossible job of justifying my crazy vision for this show to the, to the studio, you know, he challenged me a lot and I challenged him. It was, it was, sometimes it was not fun to, to put up with me (laughs) in my, in my asks for how, how much more we wanted to do when I came to him and say, I want to do a paper cutout sequence, or I want to do a, like, I want to do a crazy thing with, with this, it's going to cost this much money and see his hair fall out, but somehow get it, get it executed was invaluable. And, um, there are so many, MVPs on the show. Ben Balistrieri, I mean, he gets a lot of credit, but I got to give him more credit. 
so many nights of character designing. I mean, he was a character designer. He was a story guru. He was a storyboard artist. He was a, a director. He was my best friend. I couldn't have done it with without so many people. Um, so anyways, that's a short list, but there's the, the list can go on and on. But I just had so many people in my corner that believed in me and believed in the story and believed in this in this uh, narrative that I couldn't have done it without him. Yeah, it seems anyone who worked on this series is so proud of it and shouts to the rooftops, you know, here's my storyboards, here's a background I designed, um, you know, here's final animation that I worked on. And it's really cool to see so much pride in that. Yeah, you really point out something that is, I think, kind of rare. I, there's certainly crews and, and artists that put things out from the things that they're working on. People certainly fill their portfolios with the, the projects that they've worked on. But it really makes it obvious that we made something not only special for the channel and for the company, but something that really uh, resonates to with the people that created it. And, and they're amazing. So one of the things that I that also makes this series stand out is the incredible 2D animation by Mercury Filmworks. Mm. And so what they they did um, for this series, you ultimately went with 2D animation using rigged characters, um, also known as puppet animation. So can you explain to someone who's not necessarily in the industry um, how that works? Um, lots of shows use that, but your show stood out so much. So how did that, how were you able to elevate it to that level? How does it work? Yeah, I have no idea. That's my short answer. <laughs> but I but I'll do my best. Okay. So when we were when we were choosing a style very early on, Gary Marsh who runs the entire channel was was very vocal in in he loved the movie and it was one of his favorite movies done by the studio and was very vocal in kind of how we wanted to execute it and so I say like very early we, were, we weren't doing a lot of drawings, but at a certain point, we were coming up with visuals. And so Shane Prigmore, who was my my um, development partner, were doing a lot of these drawings. And um, the drawings consisted of these little vignettes that were really funny about, you know, what kind of adventures that the crew could get on throughout the, the series. And Gary was very taken with... Um, these drawings and he thought like wouldn't it be great if the show looked like this was was celebrated kind of the 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 hand-drawn nature of it to which we kind of took the baton and said well that's exactly how Rapunzel would want her show to be or her story to be told was is hand-drawn so we started looking around at like what what does that look like you know on on a weekly basis how can we execute it what's what's what can be done economically but also be beautiful and uh, we started seeing this style I think the first time we really looked at it was on uh, Jake and the Neverland Pirates was doing stuff in in this style and we were seeing in in some of their animations some of the, some really subtle like head movements and eyebrow movements. And we're looking at it like, man, that's that's really sophisticated. It it looks really simple, but there's but you could get some some really subtle acting. So kind of going backwards and saying like, okay, if Tangled the movie is known from an animator's standpoint as like one of the most beautifully animated movies in the last 20, 25, 30 years, then there is going to be and me 
having a background in animation, I'm going to be particular about the performances. And it started to become, okay, what was, what would lend itself to not only looking beautiful, but, but having the opportunity to, and knowing where we were going to go with the story, which was going to be really dark and really emotional and really subtle that started to inform the character designs and then ultimately the animation style. So knowing that Jake in Neverland Pirates was done in a certain certain style, we were looking at studios and Mercury, they were just so far and above what anybody else was doing in terms of, of their acting and their performance and what they could do with the program. And, to, and to, to, to kind of break it apart a little bit, what happens is... So we design a character in Burbank with our amazing character design department. And what we give to them is a full turn of a character and mouth shapes and eye movements. I was particular about eye blinks and, you know, coming from an animation standpoint, I I had very specific opinions about how I wanted things to move. And and again, like performances and that kind of went back to resting on the board team to provide Mercury with a certain amount, a certain level of performance from the characters. We, we provided really, even though they were rough, they were very clear performances uh, from the board team. So what Mercury does phenomenally is they take our designs and they break them apart into like hundreds of parts, mouths, noses, eyes, hands, hair, into all these individual pieces. So what you're kind of left with is this, it's really, it's really mind boggling to even, I mean, I know how it's done and I still don't know how it, that's why I say I don't know how they do it because I know how they do it, but to watch them work, it's like watching magic. So when they have a character like Rapunzel, she's broken up into literally hundreds of these like little shapes that they can take and move and they can mask out certain shapes and 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 it really comes down to the skill set of of the animator of what they can do with these little pieces and their team is just you know it's like saying a car but you know you look at a car and it can be anything from a race car to a truck to 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 a toy you know there's all these different versions of it and and they just have the most well-oiled machine uh, in the world. And and again, when we would have meetings with them about what we wanted to execute in terms of performance, we kept asking them to say no to us. <laughs> like, tell us you can't do this. And they wouldn't do it. We, we would have so many meetings. Like, Ben and I would look at each other and be like, when are these guys going to tell us they can't do something? Because we keep giving them these really dynamic things to execute and they just do it. And we felt a little spoiled and I started to kind of like take it for granted that they were just going to do this stuff and they just did. And I give them all the credit. Uh, They have an amazing team of being able to take something that is seemingly simple of just moving little squares and triangles around and making it come to life and giving it that breath and that emotion and the depth of these characters, it's just, it is just a miracle. When, when we would get things back and look at some of the subtle eye movement or the little, a little nose 
head shake that was so subtle. And we would look at it and Ben and I'd be like, oh, that's so good. Like, you know, like you don't see that every day. And I know that you even responded to Nothing Left to Lose in the, the big like camera turn. We didn't know what that was going to look like. That was a complete gamble of like delivering a board where that thing was going to happen. But um, Vanessa Rowett, who who executed that that sequence, they just know how to to do it in in a way that no other studio uh, does. And I can't give them enough. I cannot give them enough credit. So I don't know if that answers your question. Because I don't know how they do it, but it's amazing. <laughs> that scene, uh, Nothing Left to Lose, really kind of went viral on Twitter um, back when, uh, I guess, they were, they were promoting promoting that. So the Disney Channel YouTube had posted it. And even animators were like, what is this witchcraft? How is this done? Which is a huge compliment to you guys. And um, that's one of the things that initially got me interested in the show. I'd always known the show had existed. But I saw that scene and it just had everything I could possibly want in animation where it's this incredible music, which is a huge plus. It has dynamic animation, really well-designed, intriguing characters. And then this performance, I was like, oh my gosh, what have I been sleeping on my whole life? And so, yeah, that's um, also one of the things that I like to show people when I'm like, okay, this is what you're missing out on. Unfortunately, there's uh, some spoilers if you start watching, then you're like, oh, well, you can kind of figure out where it's going. So I got to find a different scene where there are, there are lots of them. Producing that song, yeah, you know, when it came back, it was so beautiful that we, you know, and the the animation level, um, you know, Eden and Jeremy's vocal performance, like we had to lift everything higher because every part of the story and the music and all the aspects were, were lifted. It just, that that moment in the story just ended up being such a powerful, powerful moment. And I think that's kind of why it went viral, not only because of the animation, but again, the music and the performances uh, and the color, like everything just kind of like converged uh, with that, with that, with that song. And then what beyond that, what's what, what I'm particularly proud about is that Rapunzel and Eugene are not in that sequence. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the two uh, anchors from the movie are nowhere to be found in there. And that is just a testament to the writing. It's a testament to the, to the, the animation, to every part of creating that show. We could have rested on Zach and Mandy, but what was so great is that we had an opportunity to take the, the established world and give it a depth that people ultimately, like you say, like responded to these, these new characters in such a great way. So talking a little bit about the songs, um, that's one, another thing that makes your series stand out from others is that it has this Broadway style songs that are incredible caliber. You brought back, I think you, when you think of kind of the, the hierarchy of songs, there's theatrically released songs, which are yeah. high level, and then there's direct-to-video and yeah, then TV, yeah. just a different level, sure. um, which we've come to expect. And and you shot that back up and set the bar so high um, by bringing back Alan Menken and Glenn Slater. So can you talk about producing songs for TV? Because you have quite a few. Yeah. Well, the good thing about me is that I didn't have any um, bad habits I just knew what I wanted and having such a firm kind of background in my passion for Broadway and my, 
my passion for Disney, the Disney musical, Howard Ashman's kind of viewpoint of what the role of a song is and how to use it in storytelling as kind of the backbone of how we went into music on the show, it was extremely important to me to not only have Zach and Mandy involved in, in the original cast, but to have Alan and Glenn in, involved in, in making the music as well. So that being said, if we were going to, which we did, we went and ultimately sold them on, on the arc of, of the characters and in the big mythology. And once we had them kind of locked in, it was like, okay, well, since we have them, let's take advantage of that and let's lift the music to us to that bar and let's let's lift the bar wholly right and again because i didn't really have experience in television music i only knew what i loved all of my meetings and all of my uh, interactions with the music department was you know everything that i played them like it's got to sound like this it should sound like you know and a lot of them were, were were Disney. The advantage that the series had was that it was in the DNA of a Disney film, right? So we kept looking back at like things like Little Mermaid and things like Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback of Notre Dame and, and even Tangled, the film. We had such a great template for what the music needed to be that I never... It never occurred to me that it wouldn't sound that way, right? Like I never, there wasn't an option to me for it to sound like a synthesizer or like you know a, a drum machine. Like it had to sound real. It had to have stakes. It had to tell a, a large story. The heart had to be uh, present and and um, motivating. And I think just you know out of pure will. <laughs> I just forced these songs in into in into where they were and and that being said like you, you you look at like the little mermaid and you listen to something like um under the sea that just sounds so contemporary that I wanted to have something like Lance's stronger than that song where it sounded contemporary and fun and it was a time to be able to have some fun with the music and it didn't have to be as heavy as some of the songs that we did on the show we were able to like have fun be romantic be epic and it just became it became executing on a vision and once my vision was not only established but um was once i gave all of the people exactly what I wanted to hear that it just became like, okay, let's add this, let's add this. And it, and it really, Kevin Cleish, who uh, does the, or the score on our show also does the orchestrations on the music uh, on the songs. You know, he and I would have lots of conversations about like, well, then it needs the brass needs to come in and I would come in and we would have long meetings in his studio and say like, well, you know, like nothing left to lose. If you listen to nothing left to lose, What's beautiful about that entire sequence, and it's very subtle, and I don't think anybody has really, I don't think anybody has noticed it that I've seen in any of the conversations, but there's a, a heartbeat and a, and a rhythm that starts when Varian and Cassandra are walking up the stairs mm -hmm. to, to her kind of ultimate throne room. And there's a beat, dun 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 dun. Like there's a little thread of what the song is going to be, and then how the song ends throughout the entire sequence. Not just the song, but if you watch the entire sequence, 
there is that little thread that is kind of pulling you through the entire um, sequence in the throne room there. And that doesn't come with Alan Menken because Alan Menken is in New York and he just kind of wrote a, a demo for us. So that becomes an execution of going back and saying, okay, how can we take Alan's music and build it out so that it frames an entire sequence? And there would be many times where Kevin Cleish and I would sit in his studio and take again, like the raw elements and make them darker, make them fuller. Uh, but, but it was just a, an assignment of pushing it so that it, it felt on par with the things that I feel are Disney DNA. And, and when you think about the music, the role of music in Disney uh, films, I didn't ever look at the show as a series. I looked at it as a continuation of a film. And I think that was a, a big part of, of establishing that, that bar of music and animation and color and everything, uh, boards, it all felt like a big movie. So I have a question that I haven't really been able to find a, an answer to. And maybe, maybe that's why there's not really an answer. But when the, when the show first premiered, it was titled Tangled, the series. Oh, yeah. And then later in season two, they changed it to Rapunzel's Tangled Adventure, which yeah. I, I've done a lot of research. I've looked at the press release. It doesn't state why. It just says it's changing. So what was the reasoning behind that? I think the short answer is I don't really know. The longer answer has a reflection in kind of why you didn't hear about it. Ultimately, the the issue with the show in kind of a grand, easy kind of answer was that we were too old for our young audience mm -hmm. and too young for our old audience. I, I, I Just in terms of... Um, the way that it was marketed and the way that, um, and I feel even ultimately kind of what Disney Channel's core audience is and what they do well and who they really market their shows from their live action through their animation are really, it's, it's a younger audience, right? So, you know, when you look at Disney feature animation, they don't necessarily have as a narrow of an age group that they're looking for. So they're allowed to do a wider range of ad campaigns and communication to who their audiences uh, tend to be. But in, but in television, it's, it's much more focused. And so when they're trying to find that specific audience, they, um, outside of our purview as creators, are trying to find the best way to communicate to that narrow group of audiences that that is their their core audience that's very tricky to do and especially with with a with a story that was as sophisticated that as as we set out to do so that meant a lot of kind of tripping over themselves to find a uh, a time slot that worked for that age demographic, a title, because we didn't say, you know, I was very vocal in the beginning that I wanted it to be called um, Tangled the Series, but you don't hear the word Rapunzel in that. And, you know, the, the channel really felt strongly that unless we put Rapunzel in the title, that people weren't, weren't going to find it or look for it. So they put the pressure on us to come up with a, a different title that had Rapunzel's name in it. And ultimately, it was just a way that the channel to find the actual audience that, that they were looking to hit. Um, it wasn't motivated by a story or, or by the creatives on the show by any stretch. I mean, we really fought it. We didn't, 
really feel comfortable um, confusing our audience, but they felt like that was the best way. And, you know, like my concern was they weren't really giving us notes on the narrative. Um, so as long as they weren't touching my story, I was like, okay, well, I mean, I don't really have a choice in this situation. So um, we just kind of went along with it. I think it ultimately hurt the communication of what the show was. I think a lot of people had in their DVRs looking for Tangled the series and, and uh, Rapunzel's Tangled Adventure didn't come up in the DVR. So they missed the recordings of it. It just, it was kind of miscommunication, I think at the end of the day. And um, something that was led not by the creators or the creatives on the show, but really um, led by uh, the kind of the more corporate side of it. And they do what they do. They they do, you know, it's Disney. And so you kind of have to trust after a hundred years of what they do that they're going to that they're going to treat it right you know there was a lot of trust on our end that the decisions that they were making were going to be um the right ones but ultimately it's it's hard to know what's going to to work and what's not going to work and we just put our trust in that yeah a lot of um kind of criticism online comes from how in season two just a lot of you know promotion was off um or lack of it and time slots were shifting around which is such a shame because the the series is so good that it's a shame that it didn't really get the attention it needed um, and the promotion that it needed at the time. But I think it's, it's coming around now. And I think of course, you know, with the help of people like you and with YouTube and with Disney plus, I think people are the, the right audience, the proper audience, the one that we uh, will find it. The one that we set out to speak to will find it. It was just a matter at that point of, everybody being on the same page as to like who the audience was. And that was a tough thing. It was a, you know, again, like as long as they weren't and they weren't and I'll, and I'll, and I'll give Disney a huge amount of credit to say that they did not come into my story room and say, change this. They suggested things, but when I said, no, this is what we're going to do. They were like, okay, it's your show. And, and that is the biggest vote of confidence that I could, that I could have gotten from them is to, is to hold true to the story that we were telling. And I, and I couldn't be more thankful for, to them for, for that confidence. Speaking of fans, it's interesting because I feel like there are certain animated TV shows that transcend their target audience. I think you'd alluded to this. You, in a different interview, you'd mentioned that your target demo was Broadway nerds age 16 to 18. Sure. The channel probably was girls ages 9 to 14. However, it seems that it has really struck a chord with adults and young adults. And there's every once in a while, uh, TV series come out like this, like... Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, Korra, which came from that, and even My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. So can you talk about why you think this show resonated with so many people and just overall fan reaction? You know, both Ben and and myself, had uh, Ben Balistrieri, had a lot of conversations about, you know, uh, uh, like these kinds of conversations. And I think ultimately, you know, I come from a generation that, you know, Jim Henson and uh, Mr. Rogers and um, George Lucas and Walt Disney, we come from a generation where we weren't talked down to. You know, we really, the stories that, that we responded to as kids and the pop culture that we were raised on really spoke to a large generation and um, and to a wide range of 
of people. It didn't, you know, when you watch the Muppet show, at no point do you ever think that that show is a kid's show. It is a good show for a, a, a wide range of people, right? And that's what we set out to do. We didn't make a kid's show. We made a good show. And that was always at the front of our at the front of our expectations from everybody was like, okay, I don't know if it's talking down to people or I, I just want it to be the best it can be. Uh, clear, fun, romantic, truth. And I think a big part of, of that is the truth of the storytelling. Because I put truth and these characters out front, that is what people, I think, ultimately responded to is that the relationship and the, and the drama that these that these characters were going through were real that came from a commonality that we all had of storytelling and 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 the beauty of it and in no point did we ever say you know let's make this for kids like it wasn't you know we just made it for ourselves i made it for my daughters you know again like and and it's, you know and i've said this many times about like season one is about me and my daughter's relationship I hate to keep being such a broken record about it, but it's so true that we took our cues from Disney feature. Like what I learned in the nineties in terms of like how we were telling stories and the way that we were doing things. That's how I, I mean, I was just doing what Disney taught me to do, you know, uh, from a very young age, good music, good stories for everybody, for an entire family. All right. So my final question for you is now that the series has ended, it's interesting because we talked about, you know, the lack of promotion perhaps at the time, but it's really had this resurgence now that it's ended because it has ended on such an incredibly high note and it's getting um, a lot of the viral attention that it deserves. And so what is is your final thoughts on working on Tangled the series as it wraps up? Wow, that's such a big question because I don't know that I've had... That's a great question because I don't know that I've had the the perspective yet to look back on it. To have been a part of something that has been so meaningful to so many people is such an honor. I remember being, you know, a kid and and knowing the effect that stories and characters and movies and shows had on me at such a young age and knowing that this show is having a similar effect on, on creatives across the the country and around the world is such an honor. I'm so humbled to have been a part of, to been a part of that story. And I just hope that as this thing moves forward and, and people, you know, new audience comes in and, and finds it that they can show it to their friends and it can still speak to an entire generation who may be wondering what to do with their lives and wondering what their destiny is going to look like. Are they going to stay in their town? Are they going to go off and, and find their own, their own um, way in the world? Um, plus and vu means that there's more in you. I feel like every person that watches the show has an opportunity to look at themselves and understand that they're not defined by the situation that they're in, that they can dig deeper, they can find the more in them that pushes them to a better version of themselves and to continue to strive and grow as a human, as a, as a, as a creative, uh, as a friend, 
as a as a as a son or daughter, as a father, mother. Um, we all have it in us to grow, and I hope that 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 message comes across in the show to many, many, many more people. Yeah, the show is incredibly inspiring and has hit home a lot of ways. I know when I finished the series, I cried, which uh, doesn't happen much, and it was kind of the culmination of these characters. This, the animation, the story, and the themes and narratives that you guys had told. So, you know, congratulations on um, props, major props on the good work. Thank you. That means so much. Thank you. So we actually are going to have some bonus questions that we are going to have exclusively for the patrons. So if you are a patron, stay tuned because those will be coming right up. But, you know, now that the show is over... I know on your Twitter bio, it says you are currently creating the next great American musical. So um, what sort of tease do you want to give for, for those on your next project? Well, I've, I've been certainly affected by Tangled and its effect on, on my life, uh, not only creatively, but personally. But uh, as I go into my next project, you know, we've had this conversation about who the show was for. And I only you know, I've told so many people this, that I feel like I only want to keep going with that. So as we start, I start developing and start thinking about the characters and, and the things I want to say in my next project, it, it really revolves around going deeper with uh, the music, going deeper with the characters, going deeper with uh, relationships. And, 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 and I love animation so much. So my questions are now like, what's, what's the best way to use animation to uh to do that so uh look for bigger stories more meaningful uh relationships and big news coming coming soon hopefully awesome sign me up i'm ready (laughs) (laughs) all right everybody thank you so much to chris for joining this episode and for being so gracious with his time talking about tangled the series if you haven't checked out tangled the series definitely go do that it the third season hit disney plus on April 23rd. So you really have no excuse now because it is freely available. And trust me, I mean, if you've listened this far, you've probably been spoiled. I hope you haven't. (laughs) I hope not. But go back and watch the series because it is so, so good and definitely worth your time. And a big, huge thank you to you, Chris, for coming on the show. Thank you. And thanks for having me. It's been so fun to talk to people. I want to give a huge thank you to Chris Sonnenberg and was so giving with his time. It was truly an honor to interview him and I had such a great time. So definitely check out and follow Chris on social media and I will include links to his various profiles in the show notes. You can go to rotoscopers.com slash 178 for those. Now, before I wrap up this episode, I just want to remind you that our next episode is going to be our review of DreamWorks Animation's Trolls World Tour. So if you have seen it and you have thoughts, send in your voicemails ASAP because we will be editing that episode pretty quickly and releasing it sooner than you think. And then the episode after that is going to be our Tangled the Series review with Isaac Carlson. It is going to be so much fun. We are pumped to have Isaac on the show because he is a huge Tangled the Series super fan and just an all around huge Disney fan. So we are so excited. Again, if you have not seen Tangled the Series, what are you waiting for? It is available on Disney Plus right now, all three seasons. And before you do, remember that you have to watch the 
made-for-TV movie Tangled before Ever After, before you start the season. Trust me, if you just go into the season not having watched that, you'll be very confused. How did she get her hair back? That's going to be the number one question. It introduces all of that in the TV movie, and it is so, so good. Again, a huge thank you to Chris Sonnenberg and the whole entire Tangled the Series crew for all of their hard work and for putting out such a fantastic animated TV series that I know is going to stand the test of time. That is all that I have for you guys. So until next time, we are the Rotoscopers. Rotoscopers.